Morning, everybody. Morning. To start this kind of story off right and get us all in a similar space to the characters in the story, I want to ask you to like reach way back, those of you who are adults, to the distant past and try to remember, this will be more difficult for some of us than others, try to remember the experience of waiting for Christmas when you're a kid. How many of you guys like have a concrete memory of like the month of December feeling like it was like like 70 years long. It's like the Babylonian <laughs> exile was the same length of time as, as December. I have really strong memories of this for some reason. I don't have very many strong memories from when I was a kid, but I remember laying in bed in like the middle of December and thinking like, it is never, ever going to be Christmas. Like every day is as a thousand years and Christmas is never coming. It's this thing that for, for most of us was so, so good and so exciting that waiting for it was almost painful sometimes. And there's some of you who even as adults, you're still exactly like that. Like you kept the Christmas enthusiasm 100% alive. Like the Christmas sweaters are on, on Thanksgiving and you're ready to go. And then some of you guys are much more like, you know, Grinch-like about Christmas now. But even for you, if you're an adult, like Christmas still involves waiting. It's just, you're waiting for different stuff now. Now there are some of you who it's like, what you're waiting for is you ordered your spouse's gift too late and you're waiting to see if it's going to arrive on time and you would love to blame supply chain issues, but you've been doing this way too many years in a row to be like, it's 2021, I'm sorry, there's supply chain. I'm like, there was no supply chain problems 10 years ago when you started giving me my presents on January 3rd. So there's a, and, and on a more serious note, like there are many people in the room right now and, and for you, Christmas, is a season of waiting, but it's not positive. And that could be this year, that could be for many years. There are myriad reasons why your experience of the Christmas season could be painful and lonely and filled with grief and like you're truly just waiting for it to be over so that you don't have to feel all of these associations that come with Christmas anymore. And I think for all of us, the last two years have been a period of time that have just been characterized by waiting, like waiting in big ways and small ways for life to go back to normal or some sense of normal, waiting to maybe be able to see loved ones again that you hadn't been able to see for a long time. We've been in, like just as a culture, as a world, we've been in a time of waiting for something to change. And one of the most comforting things for Christians is that the Bible and its stories and its characters are incredibly familiar with that experience of waiting. It's like you can't read a Christmas story, sorry, a, a Bible story, period. Like every other page of the Bible, you'll encounter a character who is desperate for God to do something and desperate for some promise to come true or some kind of rescue to come. And they're in this posture of I'm waiting, I'm trusting, and I want to see God come through. And the character that we're going to look at today is a prime example of that. He's a character who we know very little about him. In fact, he's one of those guys who's like, one of the coolest characters in the Bible that you've maybe never even heard of. And so hopefully for some of you, this will be your first time being exposed to this really, really cool character. But he is truly defined and characterized by the fact that he is a person who is waiting for something. And as a side note, um, this story, to my great frustration, is not considered a Christmas story for some reason. And I'm starting, as of today, an official campaign to have this story recognized as a regular Christmas story. I want Simeon in your nativity scenes. I want, because here's the thing. I'm, <laughs> I could talk about this for way too long, but let's keep it short. 
It's all about Jesus' arrival and the purposes for his coming. And it happens when Jesus is one month old, which, sorry to burst some of your bubbles, but that's way younger than he was when the wise men came. And they get to be included in like all of the Christmas stuff. So if we have your email address, you'll be getting a petition from me this week for you to sign to say we officially want to see Simeon as part of the Christmas. All right, enough about that. Let's jump in. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, they is Mary and Joseph, and him is Jesus. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple to perform two different ceremonies that were often performed together. The first one that's described is the ceremony of purification. This was for the mother, and this was a normal thing for Jewish women to do after they had had a baby. And the other one, it says they're coming to present Jesus to the Lord. This was something that was called um, the redemption of the firstborn. It was something taught all the way back starting at the Exodus with the Passover story. And it was a way of kind of symbolically buying back your firstborn from God in a way to kind of represent the fact that God had spared all the firstborn of Israel when he rescued them from out of Egypt. So they're coming to do these two very ordinary things. And what's so beautiful is in this one sentence of the Bible, you have two incredibly profound truths about Mary and Joseph, about the family that Jesus is born into. The first one, which is very clear, and Luke wants you to see this very clearly, is that they are devout, pious Jews. They are observers of the Torah. They're doing what the Bible tells them to do. And just in case you don't get that, did anybody notice how many times in one sentence Luke said that they're doing something according to the Bible? Three times. Look at this. According to the law of purification, they came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They came to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Luke is like, he wants you to see they are following the Bible. Mary and Joseph are people who are doing the ordinary lifestyle of obedience to God's law. Now, on top of that, there's another thing that's revealed here that's a little bit more subtle. Now, the law of purification, what Mary is coming to do, it says they bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they brought two birds. But that's not actually the standard sacrifice for this ceremony. The standard sacrifice, according to Leviticus 12, where this law is taught, is you bring a lamb and you bring a dove or a pigeon. But there's a provision given in Leviticus 12 that if you are too poor to afford a lamb, you can bring two doves instead. In the first century, the Jews called this the offering of the poor. So very easy question here. What does this tell you about Mary and Joseph? They're poor. And that is so powerful. It's not really central to the point of what we're talking about today, but for the Christmas season and for your understanding of Jesus' arrival, it's really important to remember that when the king of kings comes to earth. He doesn't like get born into royalty in a palace attended by servants, surrounded by armies. Like Jesus is born into a family that's too poor to afford the regular sacrifice for purification. They take the gracious offering given by God, this provision for the poor, and bring two doves instead. It's a really powerful truth about them. So what we see them doing as the story is getting set up is this young family with their one-month-old baby arriving to do just the ordinary things that a devout Jewish family would have done. And when they're there, they meet the character that we're going to be focusing on. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is everything we know about Simeon in the entire Bible, and it's actually quite a lot in a short time. We see, first of all, that he's righteous and devout. This is a biblical introduction that would call to mind all kinds of faithful characters from the Old Testament stories. It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says, and this is really kind of cryptic and interesting because there's no details given, no specifics about what this might have looked like, but it says that God has revealed to him that he, before his death, will see the Lord's Christ. Christ is the Greek way to say Messiah. So it means the chosen one, the one who all the prophecies are about, who is going to come and rescue Israel. This guy, and it doesn't say he's old, but the fact that it says he's not gonna see death before he sees the Lord's Christ and some of the stuff he says later strongly implies that he is old. So you picture this old man who has been told in some way by God, before you die, you're going to see the Messiah. And so he's been waiting. And look at how it describes him. He's righteous and devout, waiting. And the thing it says he's waiting for is the consolation of Israel. Consolation there is the Greek word paraklesis, and it means consolation, but consolation is just not a word that we use very often in English. So think along the lines of encouragement, or I think the most helpful kind of synonym for this that we use more often is comfort. It's waiting for the comfort of Israel. And comfort is actually the more common way to translate this word in other places that it's used. Because this word is used all over the Bible. It's used a decent amount in the New Testament, but where you really see it over and over again is in the Greek translations of the Old Testament prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah. You'll see this word over and over again. It's just some quick background. The Hebrew Bible, as we call it, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. But by the first century, it was very, very common for the Jewish people to read it in Greek in a translation that we call the Septuagint. So they would be familiar with some parts in Hebrew that they may be saying or heard recited, but a lot of them, the kind of reading that they did would have actually been in Greek. And so all over the Greek Old Testament, you see this word repeated and associated with God coming and rescuing his people. Like I said, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And for reasons that will become very, very clear in a few minutes, We know that Simeon is a guy who is just steeped in the book of Isaiah. He is reading the book of Isaiah all the time. He's deeply familiar with what's in there. And so for us to get kind of like a clearer picture of what it is that Simeon's waiting for, because it says he's waiting for the paraclesis of Israel. In order for us to get a clearer idea, I want to look at just a few quick examples from the book of Isaiah of how this kind of comfort is characterized. Here's the most famous one from Isaiah chapter 40. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This really kind of gives you a clear picture of what the comfort is supposed to be. Israel has been suffering. And it's clear from history, but also even just within this verse, that they're suffering rightfully. They have earned this. And yet, comfort is coming. God is going to speak tenderly to them and announce the end of suffering and the end of warfare. So generally speaking, this is about God coming and bringing comfort and encouragement and relief to Israel, that their time of trial and difficulty is over, warfare is over, and everything is going to be okay. This example makes it even 
more kind of intimate and beautiful. So sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So this is, this is amazing because the first half is really similar to what we just saw, that, hey, comfort is coming. Your affliction is over. But then all of a sudden, like all of Israel is personified in one voice. So it says, Zion says, Zion's another way of saying the city Jerusalem. And it stand, it's like a stand-in for the whole nation of Israel. And so Zion says, God has forgotten us. And that's a very common experience, right? For us and for God's people all throughout the Old Testament period. You know what? God has forgotten us. And yet even when Zion says, you know what? We've lost hope. God has, God's done with us. He's never coming. The response is, well, can a woman forget the child that she nurses? How then could I forget you? That's what's being implied. God's love and care for his people is like the love of a nursing mother for her baby. So he says, even when you feel forsaken and forgotten, comfort is coming. And this last example just kind of explodes the perspective to cosmic proportions. It says, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So those, that middle couplet, that pair of lines in the middle of the whole thing, when that comfort comes to Israel, it's going to be new creation a Jerusalem that has turned into wilderness and thorns and thistles is going to become like the Garden of Eden. And that's beautiful, cosmic, large scale, all the way zoomed out language. So if you're Simeon, this is what waiting for the consolation of Israel means. That's the kind of thing you're waiting for. For God to speak tenderly to you. For God to come even to people who feel forsaken and give them peace to bring the end of all of that warfare, to bring the Garden of Eden back to a, a tortured world that needs it. And if you're Simeon, for your whole life, you've never seen a version of Israel that has peace, that has freedom. I mean, he's living in Roman-occupied Israel, and there has just been a string of different powerful nations taking control of Israel since long before that, up until the moment that he's in the temple that day. So he's, he doesn't have a rightful king sitting on the throne in Israel to look up to. It's just a bunch of puppet kings from Herod's corrupt dynasty of sons. And Rome stays in charge. And so in the midst of that, of decade after decade of that, he's there waiting for that comfort to come. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and, and before we read what he said, which is incredible, I just want you to picture this, because this is the kind of thing when we're reading stories in the Bible, they come so quickly sometimes, like you just move right through it, and you don't picture what's happening. In this moment, Simeon, who's this guy who spends a lot of time in the temple, old man probably, He's there, and this completely ordinary young family comes in. I mean, to everyone else in the temple, they didn't look special at all. It's a mom and a dad, and their one-month-old baby, and they're coming in to do routine sacrifices that would have been done by pious Jews at this time. But the spirit within Simeon 
shows him this is not an ordinary baby. This is actually what you've been waiting for. And so he approaches the family and picks up this one-month-old baby. We know he's about a month old because of the timing of the sacrifices that they're there to do. So you got to, those of you who, who've had babies or grandkids, you know like a one-month-old baby, to pick that up is a special thing in and of itself. I mean, that's like they're still in like squishy, bendy mode at one month. You know what I mean? And some of you guys love squishy, bendy babies. I prefer them to get old enough to where I can hold them without fear that holding them wrong might kill them or something. That's when I feel like they can talk to me and we can play. My wife loves the little squishy baby phase. Jesus at this point is the full-on squishy, one-month-old cooing baby. And so we don't know, sorry if squishy is a word that you guys don't use to describe babies. That's a, it's the only one that fits a one-month-old baby. And so we don't know what the young parents are experiencing. I mean, it could be the kind of classic like, oh, this guy wants to hold the baby and we actually just got him to be quiet and like, make sure you get his head because, you know, we don't know. We know Simeon sees this baby, recognizes that this baby is what he's been waiting for, the Messiah that he's been promised he's going to see, and he picks him up and speaks. Look at what he says. It's absolutely stunning. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So the first thing he says is basically just a way of saying, hey, now I can die in peace. It's a big part of the reason why we think Simeon is likely an old man. So he's been told you're going to see the Messiah before you die. And he says, now I can die. And then what he says after that, and this is how you know, by the way, that this guy reads the prophet Isaiah. Because what he says there is a composite quotation made up of three different lines from the book of Isaiah, from three different parts of the prophet. This giant, giant 65 chapter book, right? And he takes three different sections that are all on the same theme and smashes them together into this new pronouncement. And all of them are about how the salvation of God is going to extend out beyond Israel to all the nations. So remember, this guy's been waiting for the comfort, the consolation of Israel. He's been waiting to see the Messiah before he dies. He picks up the baby and what comes out of his mouth is now I can die in peace. And then three lines from Isaiah that are all about how it's not just the comfort of Israel but this Messiah is actually going to be salvation for the entire world. There's one other beautiful thing that might be happening here. So he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, this is in Greek because it's in Luke. So what he says is your soterion. But like I said, the kind of interplay of Hebrew and Greek in the life of a first century pious Jew was a complex thing. They knew some parts of the Bible in Hebrew, read some parts in Greek, were familiar with a lot of different parts of the Bible in both languages. So he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And the word salvation occurs in two of the three quotes that he's using in this section. Do any super nerds know what the Hebrew word for salvation is? It's Yeshua, the name Jesus. So he picks up this baby. Luke records it in Greek. We don't know what language he actually spoke when he said it, Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. But he says, my eyes have seen, and then speaks maybe the name of the baby he's holding, Yeshua. And like I said, what we know for certain is that two of the three quotes that he's mixing together have the Hebrew word Yeshua in them in the original language. Something about this baby is 
the comfort of Israel. And yet for Simeon, it goes out beyond that. Salvation for all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now that prophecy is cryptic and strange and not completely clear in every detail. There's tons and tons of debate in the scholarly world about what exactly Simeon's talking about. But what's very clear in general terms is that he is saying that salvation that I just quoted from Isaiah that this baby is bringing is not going to come easy. And it's going to come at great cost and great suffering. And so he says in Israel, it's going to be for the falling and the rising of many. It's language of division. It's kind of what this whole section is. And he says it's a sign that is opposed. By the way, the Greek word for sign is simian. Do with that what you will. It might just be a coincidence. There's tons of those in the New Testament. He says there's a, it's a sign that is opposed. So people are going to see Jesus and what he's doing, and there's going to absolutely be opposition to it. Then he kind of makes this parenthetical comment to Mary that we'll talk about in a second, but he finishes by saying the result of all of this is going to be, it's going to reveal, this is the key, it's going to reveal where the different people of Israel actually stand in their hearts. It's going to reveal when they respond to the Messiah, the rising and falling of many, opposition for some. This is about division. And it's going to be so dramatic and so painful that Simeon compares it to the experience that Mary is going to go through watching her son be rejected and betrayed and tortured and killed. That's strong stuff. It's dark. So he says, division is coming. My favorite kind of like summary of this section comes from a, a scholar named William Barclay. And what he says is the kind of main point, his reaction to this is that it's about the fact that there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. No room for a neutral response. He says, you are either in submission to Jesus or at war with Jesus. And that's the point that Simeon's making for the people Israel. He's saying, there's no like middle ground. You can't just be like, he seems cool. You're either in submission to him or at war with him. And this is a tough, tough teaching for people in our world, by the way. Because a huge, huge percentage of our friends and neighbors and many of the people in the room right now, honestly, we, we would like a neutral option when it comes to Jesus. Our kind of preferred stance to him would be, well, he seems great and I like a lot of his teachings but I don't know that I'm ready to like follow him as king. And a big part of what Simeon's saying is that the response to Jesus, at least for the people of Israel, and I believe it extends beyond that as well, is going to be revealing what's really there in their hearts. The story doesn't end here. It actually doesn't end with Simeon. The very next part that concludes the story introduces us to a new character named Anna. And we get, again, this incredibly brief, incredibly like enigmatic description of her. But her inclusion in the story is really cool. And it's an example of something that Luke does a lot in his gospel. Luke does this thing over and over again where he provides pairs of male and female kind of perspectives on the same situation or male and female versions of the same situation or teaching. So a really famous example would be that the book opens with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist, 
he gets visited by an angel and told that they're going to have this son and gets all this news and we get his reaction to it. And then right after that, you have the same thing happen with Mary. So this kind of male and female combination. A ton of the parables, the way they're recorded in Luke's gospel, do this. So think of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and gets the one sheep and he rejoices over the one lost sheep. Then the very next parable is the exact same thing, but it's a woman who lost a coin and she finds that coin and she celebrates the one coin that she found. There are dozens of those in Luke. So all that to say that Anna is presented sort of as the the feminine twin of Simeon in this story and she has a very similar response to Jesus. It says, there was a prophetess, Anna. And by the way, just, I know I keep interrupting myself trying to read this thing. The fact that she's called a prophetess is a very big deal. The Talmud, Jewish writings represent, or recognize rather, seven female prophets total. So this title is a very big deal, especially during a time period in Israel's history when there is not a lot of prophecy happening. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, for the third time, like this is all we know about Anna. And it's kind of a lot, actually. It says that she was married for seven years, and then her husband died, and she didn't get remarried. And then the Greek becomes ambiguous after that, and it's not clear if she lived 84 years total or 84 years after her husband passed away, which would have put her, like, you know, in the early 100s. And it sort of doesn't matter because, in, like, in first century Middle Eastern world, Either one of those ages is incredibly, incredibly old. That's a very old age to live to in the ancient world. So she is this very, very old woman who's been a widow for most of her life. And she is in the temple all the time, night and day, worshiping, fasting, and praying. She's a prophet, prophetess. And she sees Jesus. And all Luke tells us is that when she sees him, she gives thanks to God and then goes and speaks of him to people who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So you can see the overlap in the themes with Simeon, but there's something here that is like beautifully vague. And I think on purpose, in fact. What does she say about him to all the people who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem? Isaac and I were actually going back and forth yesterday about this, about like what the different options might be about what she would have said. Because on the one hand, this is incredibly good news. Simeon says, I can die in peace. But Simeon has also just said, There's going to be rising and falling in response to this Messiah. And I don't think every single person who's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem is going to be particularly happy about the way that the Messiah approaches his task. So it's intentionally vague, but what we do know is that Anna sees the baby, gives thanks to God, and goes and says something about the fact that this baby is the key to the whole thing that all of these people have been waiting for. And so it leads us to the question that this whole series is based on. We took it from the the Christmas hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High, where the question is asked of the shepherds, why this jubilee? Why are you excited? Why are you happy in the midst of your life's circumstances? And it's a really good question for Simeon and for Anna because they're not out of the suffering that they've been waiting to be relieved from by any stretch when this story happens. I mean, remember, they're in Roman-occupied, Herodian-controlled Israel. 
And it's not like seeing the baby Jesus makes it so that suddenly Rome's not in charge in Israel anymore, right? I mean, in fact, over the coming decades after this story, things are going to get worse, not better, in Jerusalem for a while. So there's no, like, immediate relief to the the very real and present problem that they're experiencing in that moment. So why is it that they respond with thanksgiving and joy? Why does Simeon say, oh, I can die in peace now? And Anna says, a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And the answer is almost trite-sounding. It's like the Sunday school answer. The reason for their jubilee is because they have seen Jesus. And Simeon exemplifies this the most clearly because when Simeon sees Jesus, he sees the comfort that he's been waiting for. And we don't know if he already knew what type of comfort God would send or if upon seeing Jesus, the Spirit revealed what it was. But we know when he makes his prophetic pronouncement that he gets it. He sees, I've been waiting for the comfort of Israel. I've been waiting to see the Messiah. And when I've seen the Messiah, what I see is the one through whom salvation and light are going to go to the entire world. I'm seeing the Savior of the world. And he says, I can die in peace. And so I want to ask you the question that the story leads us to ask and that I think the entire Christmas season leads us to ask which is, what is it for you that you're placing your hope in? What are you waiting for? What's the thing that you feel would bring you that comfort? Think of what Simeon says. Simeon goes, now I can die in peace. What is that for you? Really, think about it. Because in a room this size, there's going to be a hugely diverse set of answers. Everything from like the really big picture stuff like, I want to see changes in the world. I want to see injustices fixed. I may be looking for particular political outcomes that I'm desperate to see happen. And when those things happen, then I'll feel a sense of peace. Or for many of you, it could be family. It could be like, man, I'm looking for a really particular outcome for my kids. I'm desperate to see something happen with my kids or with my parents or with my spouse, with some member of my family. And if this thing would get resolved, then everything would be okay and I would be comforted and I could die happy, at least metaphorically speaking, right? There's some of you guys who are like, all of that stuff is way too lofty for where I'm at right now. I'm just like, I'm like, if I can get through this month, if I can get through Monday tomorrow, like if I go to bed and I survived Monday, then I'll be okay. But all of us at, at different levels and in different ways, we kind of put these markers out in front of us and we go, if I could just get to this thing, then everything would be okay. And we know on the small scale that that doesn't actually work, right? But we put that hope out there still for the large scale stuff. I mean, think about like on the, the minor micro scale, like how many times have you ordered something on the internet and you're like, addictively clicking refresh on the tracking info, going like, it said it was Wednesday, but maybe it's going to be today. Or maybe it's Wednesday morning before I go to work and I'll get to, you know what I mean? And you're like, some part of you, even though you know in your conscious mind that this is silly, there's some part of you deep in your core that's like, when I get this thing, I will be happy. You know what I mean? Has that ever happened to you, ever? The Amazon package arrives and you're like, it worked. I can die in peace. Like, (laughs) It doesn't, right? You know that about small stuff, but it still kind of happens to you. I'm, I am the king of this, by the way. I'll order a guitar pedal and be like, when this thing comes, 
I'm never changing my rig around ever again. It's complete, it's perfect, and I'll be happy. I'll have no problems anymore. And then my wife gets to hear me a month later go, hey, I was actually looking at this other thing, this different way of doing it. And we all have our versions of that, right? It's equally the same with the big stuff that we place our hope in. Maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't, the thing that you wish for. But at the end of the day, whether you do or not, it is not going to comfort you in the way that you think it will. Because mankind has within us a need for a particular specific comfort, and it's the one that Simeon was waiting for. And here's the good news. Those words are chosen very intentionally, right? Here's the good news. What Simeon reveals is that for the Christian, your comfort, your consolation, the thing that makes it so you can say, I can die at peace, is not something you're waiting for in the future. It's something that is firmly rooted and anchored in the past. And don't get me wrong, Christians, we have hope for the future. It's one of the defining characteristics of the Christian is that we face a difficult world with hope because we know that one day Jesus is going to return and wipe every tear and correct every injustice and bring redemption and restoration to the entire world. We look for that future hope. But the reason why we face it with courage and steadfastness is because it's rooted and grounded firmly in concrete history. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born, lived a human life, died, rose from the dead three days later, and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And if you believe that happened, then you, like Simeon, can say in a very literal way, I can die at peace. Peace with God. Because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has already accomplished that for you. You've gone from the kingdom of darkness to be transferred to the kingdom of life. You've gone from being God's enemy to being God's family member. And all because of something that already happened 2,000 years ago. That's why the season is so significant for us. My Easter is so significant for us. Because for the Christian, we don't just look to the future. There's nothing wrong with hoping for the future, even for those smaller things we talked about. But for the Christian, your source of comfort and peace and consolation is in a past reality that has past, present, and eternally future implications for you. Amen? Now, here's the thing. In the meantime, it's sort of like Simeon and Anna. It doesn't automatically mean that, like, everything becomes easy and your life is just great and all of your problems and those things you worry about and struggle for and are desperate for aren't a big deal anymore. And that's why I think that these three characters give us such a powerful example of how we live our lives in the midst of that tension, living between the fact that Jesus has died and resurrected and we still wait for his return. Because all three of these characters display what that kind of godly waiting looks like. And the truth is what it looks like for all three of these characters is ordinary faithfulness and obedience to God. I mean, think about Mary and Joseph for a second. When you read this story, Less than a year before this story takes place, Mary and Joseph have each been visited by angels telling them that the son who's coming into their family is the son of God who's going to rescue his people and be the king of heaven and earth forever. Would you go on living a normal life after that happened? Well, we don't see Mary go and like, 
Okay, well, all I do now is study the Old Testament prophecies. I'm locking myself in a cave to just study prophecy so I can become the expert on this. I'm not gonna like go learn martial arts so that I'm ready for the revolution when Jesus starts it. Like they live regular, normal lives of faithfulness and obedience. That's what we see them doing when the story opens. The start of the story is Mary and Joseph going to the temple to perform the very normal practices that a faithful Jewish family would have done at this time. And it's the same thing for Simeon. He's been told by the Holy Spirit that he's not gonna die before he sees the Messiah. But he doesn't go like become a hermit somewhere. He's in the temple. It says he's living a righteous and devout life. And my favorite example of this is actually the third one, Anna. Because what we know about Anna paints a picture of a life that was probably not very easy, right? I mean, she got married. She's married for a relatively short time, seven years. Her husband died. She never got remarried. And then decades and decades have passed. So she's somebody who has known loneliness and known pain and sorrow. And she hasn't grown bitter towards God or lost her sense of hope for the future. She's actually somebody who, the way that the text describes her is is astounding. It says she's always in the temple, fasting and praying. Think about that. She's been through all of this stuff. How does she keep her hope? How does she keep herself from growing bitter in her heart? She's doing the regular spiritual disciplines that God's people have done for thousands of years. She's among God's people in the temple like you are right now in the church. She's fasting and she's praying. And so as we live between that redemptive act of Jesus 2,000 years ago in history and the future return of Jesus to right every wrong and wipe every tear. These people are our example, I believe. God may call you to incredibly radical actions of obedience. In a very real sense, that is of course the case for Mary. But your life is characterized first and foremost by steady, regular devotion and obedience to God. And so we're gonna close with communion, which is actually truly the kind of perfect way to to wrap up this story because it gives us an opportunity to embody that tension that Christians live with between the first and second coming of Jesus. I mean, communion is this activity wherein we stretch backwards in time and experience not just with our minds, but with our bodies, right? With taste and touch and scent you experience the death of Jesus in this deeply significant act of remembrance. And yet in that, there is also this future hope that we're calling to mind. I mean, Jesus in the Last Supper says of the cup, I will not drink this again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's this forward-looking hope in this action. It's like time is stretched in both directions as we do this together. And so I invite you, you can stand with me, invite you to take the bread of which Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And we do this in remembrance of the act that brings us all of our comfort and hope and peace in this life. And the cup is the same. It reminds us of the most clear act demonstrating God's love for humanity 2,000 years ago when the Son of God bled and died for our sins. And he says... This is my blood for the remission of sins for a new covenant.
You have a new standing with God if you entrust yourself to Jesus because of this. And so we do this in remembrance of him. We're going to close with a song now that is in very typical South Valley Community Church fashion, not a very normal Christmas song to sing. And yet it's a song that brings us into the perfect position to receive that story and do our best to apply it to ourselves. It's called Come and Stand Amazed, and it starts with those lyrics, and it invites us to consider the arrival of Jesus and all that it meant for humanity. And so for you today, whatever sense of waiting you're experiencing right now, whatever tension you're living with, whatever hope you have, whatever fear you have, whatever it is that you're looking forward to, I want to invite you to be like Simeon, who gazed upon a one-month-old baby and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. So let's sing this song, and all the better if you've never heard it before, because sometimes your very first time getting hit with lyrics of a new song are the most powerful. Drew, I'm really hoping this is the song you guys are singing right now, am I right? <laughs> yeah? You guys sing Come and Stand Amish. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I had very real doubt start to creep in for the last 30 seconds or so. But come, as the song says, and stand amazed at God's action in history, at his faithfulness in and through his son, Jesus. Lord, I just thank you for the great truth that Simeon saw in you, that you are, as your name literally means, Yahweh's salvation. And Lord, I pray that as we sing this song, you would bring comfort and peace to the hearts of beleaguered people in the room right now, people who need to remember that you are good, that you have already saved us, that our comfort and rest and salvation doesn't lie in our future, but in our past and what you've already done. Comfort your people today, Lord. I ask that you would use this time to do that. Help us to be drawn closer to you. We thank you for the examples of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna of their steadfast faithfulness. Help us to be a little bit more like them this year. In Jesus' name, amen.